0: Acts chapter 11 and we're going to pick it up from verse 19 under the theme, the church in Antioch. As we have our Bibles open, I I just want to leave us with this thought or let us consider this thought that the central theme of this book is that of a God who, who created us in His image and despite our rebellion, and our sinfulness, and our hard-heartedness, is relentless in coming after us. And He will stop short of nothing for mankind, for humans, to be reconciled to Him. Paul speaks about that in Colossians, that Jesus, the reconciler, that is what He's come to do, to restore that wonderful, worshipful relationship between Humans and their creator. And I want you just to hold this thawing tension as we come to study this wonderful passage this morning. And so here we go. Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, when he arrived he saw evidence of the grace of god he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the lord with all their hearts he was a good man full of the holy spirit and faith a great number of people were brought to the lord then barnabas went to tarsus to look for saul And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And during this time, some prophet came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples... Each, according to his own ability, decided to provide help for their brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word to us this morning. I thought by way of introduction, what might be useful to some of us is just a little bit of context here into this uh, Antioch uh, community that we read about. So maybe we can pull this. Map up. Thank you, Renis. So here we are. Uh, This way around. Thank you. This. There we go. Antioch is there. Antioch was a thriving metropolis, about half a million people. And at this point, it it was the place where big business deals happened. It was at the center between east and west trade routes. And so we saw that people came from Jerusalem right from here. Christians who were persecuted all the way to Antioch, about 300 miles they, came, they did this journey. So did Barnabas, a few times actually. And so there we have Antioch. And today it's called Anatakia. It's part of modern-day Turkey. Uh, sadly, uh, even though the location is wonderful, 20 miles from the Med, it's very close to the Syrian border and could not escape the impact of the war. And so this population has shrunk to about 250,000 people. So there we are, Antioch, a thriving metropolis that we read about. And one can just straight away, when you read this passage, it's so rich, you can think, man, all these little themes jump out at you. Didn't you experience that as you read it? There's so much happening in this church. And so what I thought we'll try and do this morning is just to look at what are the lessons for Lyft 2,000 years later What are the lessons that we can learn from this church? Because some things happened here, friends. This was no ordinary church. And so we want to learn from this. And so the focus this morning, this is we rather than me, although there'd be plenty of individual application, but I want to essentially draw out from this passage six lessons. Yes, six. Don't ever say I'm just a three-point sermon preacher, right? (laughs) Six lessons... From this passage that today, 2,000 years later, we can learn. So here we go. Lesson number one. The first lesson that we learned from the church at Antioch is that God is in sovereign control, even in setbacks when we don't see it that way. Acts chapter 4. The church, up to that point, booming, flourishing. It's all going fantastically well. Acts chapter 4 came and for the first time the church is met by persecution, by suffering, by opposition. Acts chapter 6, Ken dealt with this, the stoning of Stephen. And you have to at that point, if you've got two brain cells, you had to ask, God, where are you in all of this? You were the one who through Jesus commissioned your believers to take the gospel everywhere. You said this is a good idea. How can you take out your best players? I mean, the stoning of Stephen, a super evangelist, makes no sense. Not in the moment. Not at all. How can you do this, God? And We see in this passage this morning... That even at times when what God is up to makes no sense to us in the natural, we can find rest and peace that He is in absolute sovereign control. I want to say that to you this morning where you sit or online, if you feel, man, my life is spinning out of control, I want to tell you that I empathize with you and I sympathize with you, but it is a perception because your, hand, your life is in the hands of the one who created you. And he's in full control of that. Sovereign control. And so we see in this passage, as a direct result of things that we couldn't understand in the natural, Christians being persecuted, killed, stoned, as a direct result of that, this message of grace ends up in a place it may never have otherwise. Antioch. A thriving metropolis. Metropolis. And I don't have to tell you that the persecution of Christians was just some story from the Bible. Please put that out of your mind. If you Google Christian persecution 2022, you will be horrified. You will be shocked to see to what extent this is taking place every day. People who are saying yes to Jesus, being killed, being martyred, being locked up. Every day, folks. Go and do that search, you'll be amazed. And when I did that, and I began to dig a little bit deeper and read a little bit more, I came to understand that in the very places where this is going down, where Christians are be killed, those are the places where the gospel is exploding. And moving forward at such an unstoppable, rapid race, this is the way that God works. We don't always get it. But He's in control. I think back to... March 2020, with the the unwelcome arrival of COVID. And we couldn't understand that because the way that our society worked broke overnight. The way that this church functioned broke overnight. One of our core values to get together in this place every week to worship, one of our core practices was taken away from us. And it hurt us. It hurt this church. It hurt thousands of churches across the globe. We can't deny that. And then we see, at least if not the birth, the acceleration of the thing called the online church. Now you can debate with me the merits of such a thing. I don't mind that. That's not the point. The point is, when we were scratching our heads, and we're saying, God, what's going on here? You know what we're about. When that thing came to an end, thousands of people across the world heard the gospel for the first time. People that would never have put their foot in a church. I know of some of those people. And that God sovereignly, like we see here in Antioch, where it doesn't make sense, where we don't understand all of this, works together. And something amazing happens. I think of our, at the time we had to shift from a a monthly kind of prayer gathering in attendance to a weekly prayer meeting online. Folks, I want to tell you that that thing has been the best thing that from my perspective that's happened to this church. Weekly some of us get together and we pray for the nations. We pray for this nation. We pray for cities. We pray for the gospel. We pray for people in our church. Mother Lay is a prime example. Something happens. Cancer. Let's pray. Often, that meeting has become the engine room of this church in many ways. And so all I'm pleading for, all I'm asking for this morning, as we we study this passage and we think what's happened here at Antioch, why were people killed, why did they have to scatter? We cannot put God in a box, folks. And we can't always figure Him out. But part of becoming a disciple, a true follower, is that we'll find rest and peace and say, God, you know best. I'm so delighted this morning that I can put my life in your hands. And even through pain and suffering, our Ukrainian friends, I can't imagine what you're going through. Honestly, can't. Waking up one morning and everything that you've known, got used to, your suburb, your school, your church is gone figure that one out. But we trust God sovereignly in control. The second lesson we learn from this wonderful church is that every follower of Christ has the unlimited potential to take the gospel to his or her sphere. If you are a follower of Christ this morning, whether you're part of this church or not, I want you for a moment just to put your shoulders back and to whisper to yourself, I have unlimited potential to take the message of Jesus to my sphere. I really want us to hear this. The church of Antioch, the way it was founded is astonishing. This was not a church that was planted by pastors or apostles Or trained missionaries. No, no, no. Who planted this church? Luke says it was unnamed men. And I have faith that over time that included women. But it was unnamed people. He didn't even name them. And what did they do? They fled Jerusalem and they began to walk the streets of Antioch. Into the coffee shops. Into where business were done. Into where... Sport was played. Whatever the case may have been. And what did they do there? Verse 20. They began to tell. Remember Peter's message two weeks ago about gospel gossiping. That's what these people did. The original word the Greek word is the word milo. Milo means simply to tell, to speak. Folks, this is what happened here. This church was not started in a formal proclamation environment. It was everyday people like you and I going about our ways, going to work, going to school, going to shopping, walking around our suburbs, the mundane things of life, and people began to whisper, they began to tell, they began to speak of this incredible message of grace that's gripped and changed their lives forever. They begin to do that. As I looked at some of the commentaries this week, I I saw that so many of them said that This wasn't an oversight by Luke. Luke didn't forget to name these people. He knew where they were coming from. He could easily have found out their names. But the the point is that he was so intentional not to name them. Because otherwise we would have held them as super spiritual heroes, like a Saul, like a Barnabas, and we'd say, no, I can't do that. No, Christo, that's not my game. I'm not a super evangelist. Don't put that on me. Don't make me feel guilty about this. This is, I'm going to leave this for the prose. That could have been so easily that we could have read into this passage, but no, unnamed men. This is not meant for pastors. This is for all of us. And this is by no means even remotely a rebuke. This is an invitation, friends, for us to begin to live like this. I know you may sit there and think, man, I came to, to Zouk. I came here because of a great job or a great job for my spouse or whatever the case may be. And that may be true to an extent. God has given us magnificent careers here. And we want to do it well. And we want to flourish. And we want to worship God through our work. No question. But are you going to stop there? You're going to sell yourself short. Because God has placed us here. As gospel whisperers or gospel gossipers. Elise is so good at this. When often we, we just meet strangers and we begin to talk to them. and It won't take long for her in the conversation where she, she just mentions our church. That's all. And people are interested. I believe, believe me, people are interested when we begin to talk to them about this stuff. They may appear from the outside skeptics, hard-hearted. No, no, don't come to me with this. I'll tell you inside they are wanting to know. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And so in this passage, in this church, unnamed men changed the world. That's us. I was sitting in a a wine bar one late Friday evening and uh, into this establishment, walk about 10 to 15 people. And I immediately recognized one of the guys. He was part of our church at the time, actually part of us in eldership. And uh, he was the attorney and the whole law firm went out for dinner and then came to this place afterwards. And uh, I still can't remember exactly how it happened, but I ended up talking with one of the young attorneys in their team and kind of just introduced myself. And we started talking and then he asked me, how do I know this guy? And I said, well, I know him because, you know, we're part of the same church. And this young guy was fascinated. He, He couldn't believe that I would go to church. And so he started asking me, you know, tell me about the church. Why do you believe? Why do you believe? You really think there's a God? And here we are late at night in a wine barn. I'm just kind of answering questions. I'm millowing. I'm gossiping. I'm, you know. And it came to part ways. And I said to him, you know what? I don't care what you do. But there's one question you have to figure out for yourself. And that is, was the resurrection of Jesus real? Because if Jesus walked out of the grave, everything else changes. You go and find an answer to that question. And so he said to me, where do I find our? And I pointed him to some resources. I said, you can go and read this stuff. But you can also come to a church. We meet literally a half a block from here. That's where we meet. Sunday night, six o'clock. You decide. A Sunday night came and I had zero expectation. But here he walks in. Not only does he walk in, he sits right in front. And he came week after week. And then our church did an Alpha course and he said, I'm in, I want to do this, I'm going to do the Alpha course. And it's more or less at that point that we moved on and I, I actually don't know how this story ended because we've lost touch. But that's not important. I'm trying to just point us to be more like these unnamed people in Antioch. Folks we can do this, we can do this, I honestly cannot believe that God would bring me to this city just to make myself a little richer and experience a little bit more of Europe and have a new more friendships, all of that stuff is great but that's not why we're here. Let's become like the Antioch church, let's begin to milo, let's begin to gossip, let's begin to share this incredible good news. The third thing we learn from this church is is wherever the gospel is shared, God, not us, God has the power to save sinners. For us to fully understand this, we need to know a little bit more about this Antioch gathering. This church was, was made up of corrupt, scandalous people. Political scandal was the order of the day. Corrupt business deals sexual excuse me sexual immorality it was a melting pot of a big mess that's what this church was about and it is significant that if God had to pick a place from the the gospel will be launched into the whole world that he would pick this place that the, the first place where believers are called Christians is here, Christ followers. That the, the first place where Jew and Gentile come together is here. This is the place from which the mission, the message of Jesus went into all of Europe and eventually all of the world. That God would, play, would pick a place like this is incredible. And dare I say, it, the more I read about Antioch, the more I think about Zouk because we're exactly the same. There's political scandal here virtually every day. There's corrupt people in business deals everywhere. And it's okay in this culture to sleep with whoever you want to, where you want to. That's okay. And God chose Antioch to begin to change things. And in a sense, Antioch was actually the perfect breeding ground for the gospel to flourish in this pagan environment, in this... This immoral mess, if you like. I'm going to send my people, unnamed as they may be. And they're going to begin to whisper the cross, the message of Jesus to them. And I want us to see in this verse 21 that not only was this people telling them about Jesus and then say, okay, I've done my thing, you know. Verse 21 says that people, no, no, people turned to the Lord. That is a significant verse. That is repentance, friends. That is not just on an emotional basis saying yes to Jesus and then carrying on with our lives. That verse implicates that people in Antioch turned in their tracks and they left their immoral behavior behind. They stopped doing business practice that, practices that were corrupt. They turned, they repented, and they turned to Jesus. That's repentance. And when Barnabas arrived, what happens? It tells us that Barnabas sees the grace of God. What a verse. And I'm thinking, how do we see the grace of God, friends? In your life, how do you see the grace of God? I'll tell you, one of the ways we see the grace of God is the way in which He comes after us and changes our lives. And so from an immoral mess, these people began to turn their lives around. They began to change. As they've heard this little gospel being drip-fed, they put the pieces together and they come to a place where they say, Jesus, we are in. Not only are we in, not only do we leave this message, but please change us. We don't want to stay the way we are. Come and change our lives. And so for us as a church, this is not about just about getting people into heaven, as Dada's Willard would say. No, no. This is about getting heaven into people, radically, fundamentally changed. That's what happened to me. I made a a complete turnaround As as I walked away, yes it took time, but as I walked away from what I, the way I was living, step by step. As God's grace pulled me to turn away. So there's nobody that's beyond the gospel. I want us to hear that this morning. I used to think like that. I used to think that there are some people, man, in my current sphere, my friendships, surely not God. So-and-so is too wild, too sinful, too this, too that. To God reminded about me Christa you were like that every one of those boxes you can tick I came after you I know you were stubborn and I know it took time but you changed me and so none of us like we see in this chapter in this passage is beyond the reach of the gospel I want us to remember that this morning then fourthly We can learn from this church in Antioch that that grace always triumphs over legalism. And I'm so grateful for this. And many of the commentators in this passage point to the fact that this news, that people in Antioch, pagans, Gentiles, got rescued and saved by the gospel, this news traveled 300 miles down to Jerusalem to the church fathers, and they began to take notice of it, and it made them scared and worried. What was going on here? We hear of of people eating together that's of different religions and breaking uh, circumcision laws and ceremonial laws, all of this happening, and so they sent Barnabas, Barnabas, go and check this out. It is okay, we could have dealt with chapter 12, Cornelius and his household getting saved after a radical message by Peter. We could still stomach that. But these reports worry us. Go and check it out. Barnabas, the encourager, arrives in Antioch and he sees the grace of God and he rejoices. Yes, it was an imperfect church. Yes, it was followers who were just beginning to find their way. But he saw the grace of God. And if in that time, the church had sent one of the, you know, the circumcised or circumcision specialists or lawyers, he would have shut this church down. It would have gone nowhere. But a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom... And full of the life that God has put in him, full of grace, walks through the doors and he says, I'm rejoicing. This is a good thing. People are laying down their lives for the gospel. People are changing their lives from the inside out. This is what Barnabas saw. Yes, some minor Jewish laws were broken. Some rule books were thrown out the window, but the grace of God triumphed. And Barnabas himself was a man who lived by grace, and so he rejoiced at this church like us. Different people, different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures. Friends, the application for us is we need to be like Barnabas. We need to be full of grace. We can't pull up our nose for some people that walk through our door that that looks differently or speaks differently or from a different culture, different country. No, no, no. This is how the gospel works. This is what grace means. That we, as we have received grace from the ultimate grace giver, we hand out grace to others. I want you to check your life. How graceful are you towards others coming here? There is no space in the gospel for discrimination of any kind, for rule books. Barnabas didn't point them back to the law. He said, yes, I see some stuff. We can work on it. This is a journey. I understand that. But he rejoiced because he saw the grace of God changing people. And we've seen it in this church. Throw your life, throw your heart, throw everything that you have open to strangers to this message. That's what God is calling us to do week after week after week to embrace. Come here, you welcome, you love. loved. This is not a place we have to perform to get somebody's approval. No, no, no. This is where we level at the foot of the cross. This is where grace triumphs. And if you've got just a hint of legalism in you, I'm asking you, I'm inviting you, I'm suggesting to you, no, no, I'm telling you, kick it out the door. It doesn't belong here. Then fifthly, not only are we saved by grace, thank goodness for that. If I had to save myself through other means, it would have been a disaster. No, no, it's pure grace that's rescued us. But not only are we saved by grace. We are also sustained by grace. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, the day that you say yes to the gospel, that day you also say yes to a lifelong journey of living godly and righteously and smartly and wisely. And you need to hang on to that because I guarantee you that if you don't do that, if you just confess your faith and think things will just come your way, you're going to get a nasty surprise because what will come your way will be temptations and hardships. That will happen. And when that happens, we need to be, made, we need to be very assured that we have made this, not only made this confession, that, but, but that we want to grow in holiness. We're on this journey. We say yes to Jesus. It's not oh, I'm so glad now I'm done, I'm I'm, I'm heading for heaven. No, no, this is where the journey starts. And Barnabas could see this. He could see all the little imperfections. And so what does he do? He encourages them. He says, man, this is an awesome thing that's happening here. This is a great thing. And And he began to encourage them specifically the word here, stay the course. Don't fall by the wayside. You're going to endure some hardships. You're going to be tempted from time to time, but stay the course. This is a call not only that Barnabas made to the Antioch church, this is a call that God makes to us today. Stay the course. This is a call to lay down our lives and to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, to deny ourselves, to follow Him. This is the call that, that, that God is making for us to embark upon and to abide in Him. He is the all-sufficient One. You may experience some stuff, but you may, you have, we have to remember that Jesus loved us so much that He gave Himself up on the cross. And I think one of the great dangers for all of us as followers of Christ is from time to time to underplay the cross. We take it for granted. We forget what happened there. The anguish was so deep, the humiliation so real. Jesus' best friends walked out on him. His own race denied him. They wanted to kill him. His own heavenly father, dare I say, turned an eye in another direction. And did Jesus bail? Did he at that point say, okay, if I look around me, maybe this is not such a great idea. Stay the course. Why did he stay the course? So that you and I, from that moment on, never have to be alienated from our Creator again. That eternal separation from God will never happen when we come to the cross and we invite Jesus into our lives. And so it is grace that has motivated him to do this. Stay the course, friends. Stay the course. I've just turned 60 and one of the prayers I pray most times for myself is finish strong. Because guess what? The temptation to do otherwise is massive. It would be so easy for me to, to walk in that other r- direction. But this grace message, this thing that Jesus went through, meditate on it. Let it soak your heart and you afresh. And that would help you to stay the course. Not a bunch of rules, not some legalism. No, no. The thing that will make you stay the course is the message of Jesus that is so radical and yet so gracious. That will help us to stay the course. And then finally, we learn from this church a wonderful thing. And that is to be be graciously and radically generous. So this prophet, Agabus, somebody who hears from God and come and share it with his people, Agabus comes to them and says, there's going to be a famine in Judea with massive implications. And this little new church, nobody asking, nobody prompting, nobody forcing says we want help and they do that but think about this this is a brand new church when you plant a church uh, i've been part of that journey when you plant a church boy do you need resources financial and human the very last thing you want to do when you plant a church is to give it away and so this church could easily have said That's fine. We see you need. Give us a year or two. Let us settle down. Let us build up our resources. At that point, we'll help you. We promise. We're coming your way. No, no. What if they do? They hear a need and they say, here we are. It doesn't matter what we have or don't have. We trust God. Our lives is in God's hands. We're not going to be thrown by this little thing and we're not going to give under compulsion. We give because God has given so much of Him to us. That's the reason to be a giver. And in this church, We've got such amazing examples of this. All of us should be so proud of it. I'm so delighted that Ken and Christine, so many years ago, forged this relationship with this church in Armenia. A few weeks ago, we had supper in his house, and he began to tell a story that I didn't even know existed, of how that relationship came about. And how we've, over the years, been able to do our little thing Ken found a boy to break all the international currency rules and got money to them, right? This church gave generously. When the Ukrainian war started, in no time, we got 50,000 francs together. My friend, that's a lot of money in any man's book. And we found a vehicle to deliver it to where the need is greatest. That's a wonderful thing. That's a mark of a great church. If we're not consumers, no, no, we give us. And we will need to continue to do this if we want to fulfil the missionary mandate that rests upon us. Hear me this morning. I'm not looking for your money. None of the leaders are looking for your money. But if we take the mission that God has called us to even halfly serious, we will have to part with some of our resources to make this happen. I think of the little French countryside where we, where we have a a property, and there's a little church here, and they meet in the most primitive of ways. I think, man, this church, it needs, it needs a, a decent overhead projector. It needs some musical equipment. It needs some people to come and preach there. Some leaders to be encouraged. It needs, and if we don't go, who will? And so this church, is, we've lived this space. This is, this is a wonderful thing for us. We can celebrate it. All I'm saying is, God, was, God is going to expect more of us. And that's a good thing. We'll be living for things that will last forever. I tell you you get involved in seeing another mission, another thing work, and you never question the meaning of life again. You never struggle, struggle with purposelessness, a reason to get out of bed. Just like it is as an individual to gossip the gospel, as a corporate together, to do what we can to see the gospel flourish. It is a wonderful thing. And so well done. But let's stay course and so here we have this church in Antioch who rested in God's sovereign control yes there were things they couldn't figure out like we things they couldn't understand but God's sovereign control was good enough for them and they went with that here was a church that that didn't believe that the the forward moving of the gospel is restricted to a few elite. No, no. They were gossiping in the streets of Antioch, wherever they went. Here is a church who believed that the only way that man can be reconciled to God is by God saving sinners by grace. And everyone is included. There's no outsiders in that conversation. Here is a church who saw the motivation to to move away from legalism and laws and embrace this grace that God has extended to you and I and all of us this morning. A church that used grace to stay the course. Not a pastor, not some rules, not some prescriptions, but God's grace so tenderizes your heart, so messes with you from the inside out that I want to live like that. I want to live rightly, godly that's what I want to do and my motivation is God's grace in my life and here is a church who want to give generously to every possible occasion folks why would we not want to be part of a church like this and the, 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 the kind of the climax the cherry of it all is this verse and the hand of the Lord was with them and considerable numbers put their faith and trust in Jesus. Can this be said of lift in years to come? I believe it can.